Why don't you grab your Bibles? Uh, if you don't have one, this should be one of the beautiful blues underneath your chair. You can snatch up one of those. Uh, we are going to be in Acts. We've been in Acts for a while now. Uh, it's been a fun journey. We're going to be Acts chapter 9, uh, page 597. Acts chapter 9. Uh, and in your Bible, it's probably page 1012. I don't know, give or take 100 pages. Okay, so We've been in the book of Acts, right? And the book of Acts, what I love about the book of Acts, so many things, but one thing that I really love about the book of Acts is the book of Acts is our story. You see, the book of Acts is the story of the church going from 12 disciples to thousands of people, continuing to today, right here. Right here, the book of Acts is our story. It's the story of our beginnings. It's been an amazing journey. It started, you know, pretty small, and it exploded. I mean, it exploded. It had so many people in Jerusalem, thousands of people in Jerusalem. And then it left Jerusalem, and it went to the farthest reaches of Judea. Jerusalem was the city. Judea was the country. And it began to spread throughout that entire country. And then it jumped the border of Judea and went into Samaria, which was another country. It was kind of their sister country. Uh, The Jews were related to the Samaritans back in the distance of past and they were related, and it jumped into Samaria. And it was ama- it's been amazing to see God do all these um, mighty acts, uh, changing people, letting the gospel get into their lives, into their hearts, into their minds. And then this thing called persecution started happening. And I mean, there was a lot of persecution that started happening. And there was this guy named Saul. And when you hear the name Saul, or at least when they heard the name Saul, I imagine what they heard in their head was, dun, 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 dun. Okay, Saul was a bad guy. If you don't know, that was Star Wars, the emperor, Darth Vader. When they walk into the scene, that is their theme song, okay? Paul, Saul came in and he had a theme song and it was scary because Saul hated Christianity. In fact, in synagogue class, he was voted least likely to become a Christian, and most likely to be on a wanted poster. Um, That's actually might not be true. It it might be true, I don't know. But but here's the thing. Saul hated Christianity so much so that he would take men and women, he would drag them out of their homes, away from their spouses, away from their children, away from their families, and put them in prison. He hated Christianity so much that he took a, a journey from Jerusalem, 135 miles north to Damascus, to take people from Damascus and bring them back and imprison them in Jerusalem. That's how much he hated Christianity. I mean, Saul hated Christianity. Can can you understand this? And he's he's walking to Damascus. Oh, look at this. We have all this stuff up here. Modern technology. Love this. Okay, he's taking a journey to Damascus, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him. Jesus appears in his glorified form, and Saul is so uh, taken back, he falls to his knees, and he's blind for three days. He's blind for three days, and then Jesus sends this guy named Ananias to him, uh, leads him to Jesus, baptizes him, and I love what it says. Immediately, Paul, or Saul, he's got two names, just so you know. It's kind of like Billy Bob. Uh, He's got two names. Saul immediately immediately began preaching the good news of Jesus. 
This guy who was persecuting Christians began preaching the good news of Jesus. And last week we learned all about it. He was in uh, Damascus and he was in Arabia and he was in Jerusalem for about three years preaching the gospel. And, and, and it got kind of dangerous. So he had to, I mean, he escaped Damascus like by the skin of his teeth. He had to be lowered out of a basket uh, down through the wall. Kind of crazy. And then in Jerusalem, they were wanting to kill him. And so they sent him to Tarsus, which is also up there. And this, this is what's going on with, with Saul. But in the meantime, other things are happening. And Acts t- kind of takes a little bit of a turn, and it jumps into the life of Peter. As Peter is preaching the gospel and what, what, what goes on with him, uh, we're in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. It says, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. So cool. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And Aeneas said, did my mom put you up to this? (laughs) See, that's why you have to follow along, because I might make something up. Rise and make your bed. And, And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. How awesome is this story? There's this guy named Aeneas, and he's paralyzed. He's been in bed for eight years. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm lazy sometimes. I like to be lazy. I've got a big old lazy bone. What's the biggest bone in our body? What, the, the femur? Is that the biggest one? That's my lazy bone. Because I just, I really enjoy getting a chance to just be lazy. And that's the only redeeming thing about being sick. Because when you're sick, you get to just lay in bed. You got a little bell for your wife so she does stuff. No, men, you should be shaking your head. That was a test. That was a test. You failed. You failed. No, we don't do that. But you can lay in bed and you can jump on Netflix and, and find a show that's already like four seasons in and just lose yourself in it. Just, just relax and kick back and just, just be lazy. But I tell you what, as lazy as I am, I think after about a week, I, I, mean, I start getting kind of antsy. I wouldn't want to be there any longer. I'd want to go do something, maybe something inside and in the air conditioning, but I wouldn't want to do something other than lay in bed. And Aeneas, he's paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. My brother, he's married to my sister-in-law, conveniently enough, and, and their second pregnancy She had a high-risk pregnancy, and so she had to be confined to a bed for four months. That's a long time. And and I remember how difficult it was for her because she couldn't get up. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't put on her shoes. She couldn't lift anything. She she had to be in bed, and she was just confined. Now, now, Now think about Aeneas. He's paralyzed. He cannot move. He cannot get out of bed for eight years. Can you imagine what that must have been like? How how just difficult life would have been? Doesn't get to interact, doesn't get to run, can't jump, can't walk, can't hang out with people in the same way that other people can in the marketplace. I mean, a little bit excluded from society. And Peter comes in. He meets this guy named Peter, and all of a sudden he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And now he's healed. Now, Aeneas' life is changed for the rest of his life. He can walk, he can run, he can jump, he can hang out within society, in the public places. How cool is this? Not that cool. Okay, we'll move on. 
Now, no, that was forced, forced, forced. <laughs> now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which transla- translated means Dorcas, and she wished we hadn't done that. <laughs> she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, he took them to the upper room. They took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. Yeah! First of all, I would have freaked out had that happened, terrified. But Peter knew what was going to happen. He had great faith. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. She was dead. And then she opened her eyes. Okay? That's crazy. That's awesome. And, and he gave her his hand uh, and raised her up. Then calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, these two stories are pretty awesome, right? I mean, we've got two people I mean, you've got this guy who's paralyzed. He, he now can walk and run. He's healed. His life is, is changed, right? And, and of course, Tabitha's life was changed. I mean, she was dead and then alive, right? And I guarantee after she raised from the dead, no one called her Dorcas ever again. Like, they stuck with Tabitha. But here, but I mean, really, do you see the lives of these people changed? That's awesome. That is something worth celebrating, and, and I don't know about you, but me, it's easy for me to just get wrapped up in these healings. It, I mean, it's so amazing. But I love, I love what Scripture does. It won't let us sit there. It continually wants to point us to an eternal perspective. Because their lives on earth were changed, and that's good. I mean, we, we don't look down upon that. That was great. Healing is awesome. But what are the two things that those stories have in common? At the very end, the tagline, which is, I mean, the climax is that people saw and people heard and their lives were changed for eternity. They turned to the Lord. These people who who lived in in darkness, who lived in, in death, who lived in slavery, they turned to the Lord and now they're living in life, light, and freedom and their eternity is set in heaven. Like, that's awesome. I mean, there were probably hundreds of people that saw this and turned to the Lord and whose lives were changed for eternity. Like, these are some awesome stories, especially when we look at it from an eternal perspective. What all God is doing, it's amazing. But, but I tell you, bless you, but I tell you what, just a side note, I don't know why we say that because it started when... <laughs> when people thought that your soul was leaving you when you'd sneeze, and so they'd say, God bless you. But we, we don't believe that anymore. We still say bless you. And also, it, I, it's like insulting to the cough. <laughs> when someone coughs, I feel bad, especially right after someone sneezes, and I bless them, and then coughing, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's beside the point. 
You've got, all, you've got all this celebration going on, and this is good. Healing is great. People's lives changed for eternity. Unbelievable. But there was just this thing that, that I, I believe God kept, kept drawing me back to. And it was, what about, what about the guy in Lydda who's paralyzed that didn't get healed? You know what I'm saying? I mean, this took place over probably you know, a few months, maybe a couple years, and, and we only hear about two healings. There were other people in those cities that, that were sick, other people in those cities that were paralyzed, other people in those cities that were dying, that died, and only two people got healed. And, and here, here's why I'm saying that, is because for the guy that didn't get healed or the girl who didn't get healed, that good news can be difficult to hear. What about me? I mean, I can relate. When I'm going through great difficulty, when I've had to suffer in my life and I see other people being healed, other people God doing great things through, just being honest, I think about what about me? When I've had loved ones that die, God, what, what, what about them? Why, why them? Why now? And I believe that each and every one of us has wrestled with that at least in, at, some, at some point in our lives. And there's this guy in Scripture that I think knows exactly how we feel. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 11, page 529. This guy's name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Okay, they were related. John the Baptist was also the prophet that was raised up to make the way ready for Jesus. He was to make the way ready for Jesus, who was the Messiah, to do his thing. John baptized Jesus. John pointed people to Jesus. We, we can say that John was a, a pretty big fan of Jesus, right? Well, well John ends up in prison because he's preaching against what Herod is doing, and Herod was the king, and Herod was a pretty uh, rough king. He was not afraid to, to put you in jail and kill you. And so he puts John in jail. And John sit here in jail not knowing what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to die at any moment. And he does this. He says, now, it says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and that's Jesus, by the way, not his last name. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, heard about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Interesting thing here, Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah. The passage in Isaiah about, you know, the deaf uh, hearing, the blind seeing, the, the good news preached to the poor. And, but, but I imagine John in prison, Thinking back to Jesus' early ministry, when Jesus first started out in ministry in the book of Luke, he, he walks into a synagogue, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, which is where he quoted this, this passage, they hand him the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds the point where it talks about the Messiah coming and setting the captives free. And John is there, he's, he's captive, right? I mean, he is in captivity, he is in prison, and Jesus has talked about how he, he fulfilled that prophecy in their midst. That's what Jesus said. He reads it and he says, hey, 
Good news, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to set the captives free. And John is sitting here in prison. I imagine thinking, what about me? I mean, if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to set the captives free. I'm a captive and I'm not free. What's going on? And it's interesting to me that Jesus quotes Isaiah just like he did before, but a different passage that doesn't talk about setting the captives free. And he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Ever been offended by God? The way that God does things, the way that he chooses to do things, the way that he chooses not to do things? I have. And it's that question that we wrestle with. If God, you are so good, if you are so powerful, you can heal and you would heal So why have I not been healed? Why do I suffer? Why do people I know and love die? What's going on, God? I I don't understand. And you can even say, okay, I'll I'll get outside of my, my selfishness just for a moment, and we'll look at the eternal perspective that Acts lays out for us. God, when you heal, people come to know you. So for an eternity, lots of people's eternity is changed so, so why not heal everyone? I mean, God, why did you create a world that, that has so much evil in it? Why did you create a world that's so broken? God, why? And it's easy to begin to think that way. But what's interesting is God didn't create the world this way. You see, God is good. He is perfectly good. God is pure love. And he created a world that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it was very good. There wasn't suffering. There wasn't death. It was very good. So what happened? I'll give you a hint. They look a lot like you and I. We happened. God created humanity. And humanity, he created them, gave them the ability to choose, hey, I'm going to follow you or not. They didn't have a fallen will, Adam and Eve, our first parents. They didn't have a fallen will. And they chose to rebel against God. They chose to make themselves enemies of God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. We rebelled against God and became enemies of God. And it says that creation groans under the weight of our sin. I mean, I just imagine creation, sin, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, they are so heavy, and we see them, don't we? You see it every day, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin. You see creation groaning under its weight. Why is it like this? Us. We, we, we did this. But it's hard for us to really grasp that and understand that because we grew up in a society that says there's no personal responsibility. It's my parents' fault that I'm like this. Yeah. It's my teacher's fault that that I didn't get a good grade. They didn't teach me well enough. Teacher's fault. It's, you know, my boss's fault that, that I lost my job. It's the government's fault that life is the way that it is. It's Obama's fault, right? The president, it's his fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault that I spilled my hot coffee on myself. It's McDonald's fault. <laughs> right? Because had they had a label on it that said very hot, then I wouldn't have accidentally spilt it on myself. It's not my fault. 
Guy walks into a house to rob the house. Gets cut on a knife in the house he is robbing. Sues the family and wins. This is the world that we live in, right? It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. In fact, God, it's your fault. Just like Adam said, when God came down after he ate the fruit, he said, Adam, what'd you do? And he said, the woman you gave me. You kidding me? She's defective. Where's my 30-day money-back guarantee? You, God, you're to blame. You made a bad, bad woman. She was naked. What was I supposed to do? You know, I mean, it's just blaming, and we do that now. We have no responsibility. It's your fault. But we sinned. We chose to sin, okay? And the effects, the consequences of our sin are great. And part of the consequences of our sin is suffering and death. That's the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. Suffering and death happen because of our sin. And, and I tell you what, let's all be thankful for a moment that I'm not God. Because if I were God, and I'm all sufficient in and of myself, and, and out of my creativity I create humanity, not because I need them, not because I need their love, not because I need their worship, I, I create them because I'm awesome. Okay, they, they rebel against me. Okay, spit in my face, rebel against me. I'd say, all right, we'll see how that works out for you. I, you know, we're going to let you live in the consequences of your sin. In fact, we're going to let you live in the full consequences of your sin. We're, we're going to let you suffer, and it's going to be meaningless, and you're going to die, and it's going to be forever. It's gonna, and you're just going to suffer forever, and there's going to be no meaning in it. It's going to be awful. Like, I feel like, logically, that's what God should have done. But I've been blown away over and over this week with what God actually did. If you want to, turn to James chapter 1. It's in the back of your Bible, right after Hebrews, because everyone knows where that is. Page 654. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's writing. He's talking about suffering, and he says such an interesting thing about it. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, Romans, Romans says something similar in 5. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Here's what Scripture is teaching about suffering. First of all, one day, we are all going to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. How cool is that? I mean, one day, all of you are going to be just like me. What? No, one day we'll all be mature and complete, and I'm so excited about that day. I'm sick and tired of all my nasty filth. One day I'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, so this is mature and complete Brady, and here's Brady now. You know, this is like sinful Brady, right? So we've got sinful Brady, and then we've got mature and complete, lacking nothing Brady. And God did this. It's amazing. He said, you know what? The consequences of your sin, what you have to go through is suffering but I'm going to give it great meaning in that 
suffering and trials are going to bring you to completion. So as you suffer, you know that this is bringing me into that moment of completion. How cool is that? It's not just empty and meaningless. It is what God is using to bring me to completion. The consequences of what I deserve, God's going to use it for great good in my life. And stop there. Philippians chapter 3. Paul is talking, he's talking about Jesus. He says, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And that I may share in the fellowship of his sufferings being made like him in his death. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. When, when Scripture looks at suffering, when Paul looks at suffering, he gives us this, this, this amazing perspective. Is that God chose to redeem suffering in such a way that when we suffer, we are brought uniquely close to Jesus. Jesus, the God of the universe. We were created with a deep and desperate need to be connected to God. We were created with a hunger for God that we don't always realize. And Paul says this, God has redeemed suffering in such a way that when we go through it, we are brought uniquely near to Jesus. And here's the picture that scripture gives. Think about a wedding. Okay, you've got this groom, right? And and you've got this this bride and they've been dating and they they were, you know, they have the butterflies, they love each other. You, You parents, you remember back when you loved each other. You know, you remember what it was like. Okay, so, you know, you love each other and it's all fun and you, you want to be connected, you want to be near, you want to, you know, it's just that, that awesome time. And I'm kidding. Marriage makes love so much deeper, just so you know. Okay, so this is the picture. And in Scripture, it calls Jesus the bridegroom. And it calls us his bride. So you see this picture of a bride and a bridegroom that, 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 that love each other, that want to be near each other, that want to be connected. And suffering brings us uniquely near to our groom. And then death is the moment when the veil is taken off. Okay, you, they've been waiting for forever. I mean, been waiting for so long, it seems like forever, to, to, to be near to each other, to be connected to each other, to be intimate with each other in a way that where there's nothing between them. And then in the wedding, you've got the veil on the bride, right? And there's that moment when the pastor gets to say, you may now kiss the bride. And he takes off the veil. And there's nothing between him and her. And they kiss. And they're able to be united. Nothing between them. This is what death is for us. This is the way that God has redeemed death. Is It's the moment when we are finally in the presence of the fullness of our desire. The fulfillment of all our desires, all our hopes, all of our dreams. Everything that we were made, everything we were created to have, to be connected to. We are finally there. That's what death is for us. 
This is the way that God has redeemed death and suffering. And it's amazing, it's mind-blowing to me that our God is so good that he takes even the consequences, what we deserve, and gives them great meaning and great hope and great connection to him. And yet, even when I know that, even when I have the eternal perspective, I still struggle with it. I still wrestle with it. It's difficult to go through suffering. It's difficult to deal with death. My grandmother just passed away about two or three weeks ago, and it's hard. And, and, and I worry, like, am, am I sinning because, because I'm wrestling with it, even though I know the truth, that it should be good? And it almost feels like sometimes like I, I'm supposed to be this robot, that good news, great, bad news, great, good news, great, bad news, great. And I'm just, you know, you know, no up and downs, no, no emotions. And it kind of seems like, okay, if I knew the truth, I should be like that, right? But I love the picture that Scripture paints for us through the life of Jesus. Jesus has this buddy, Lazarus. He's real close with his family. He's close with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. He loves them deeply. And, and there's this moment where he's away from, from their, uh, their town, their village, a, a good distance away, and he hears that Lazarus is sick to the point where he's probably going to die. So Jesus begins making his way to Lazarus. When he gets there, they tell him that Lazarus has died. And what does Jesus do? It's everyone's favorite verse because it's the smallest verse in the Bible. Jesus, he wept. Wait, wait, wait. What was he doing weeping? He, he had a good eternal perspective, right? I mean, can we agree Jesus had a good eternal perspective? Yeah, yeah. So what, what's he doing weeping? And he should know that that's, that's good. He's, you know, you, you know in a better place. Like, well, I, what's going on? Jesus was fully human and fully God. And, and in the fullness of his humanity, he needed to grieve. Grieving is good. Wrestling is not bad. In fact, there's this moment where Jesus hears that his cousin John, John the Baptist, who baptized him, his cousin John is killed. And he, it says he goes away to a secluded place. He needs to be alone. He needs to wrestle with all that's going on. He needs to grieve. Jesus, who had a perfect eternal perspective, fully human, fully God, needed to grieve. And I don't know about you, but that gives me such great comfort that, that grieving is good, grieving is healthy. Even with an eternal perspective, it's good to grieve because Jesus grieved. And in the midst of our grieving, God is near to us. All of us who are disciples of Jesus have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And God is near to us, filling us with his Holy Spirit. He's also near to us within the community. Through each and every one of you, the Spirit shines through you and God is near to us through you. And when we are going through trials, when we're going through suffering, when we're going through great loss, he's there for us in his Spirit and he's there for us in each of you to help walk us through this, to, to lean on when we need someone to lean on, to carry when we need to be carried. God is near to us. He loves us so deeply, so intimately. He's so connected to us. David at one point says, God, where can I flee from your presence? You're so near to me. Wherever I go, you are there. God loves us so deeply, and in the midst of suffering, he is there. 
And he says it's okay to grieve. Jesus grieved. But Paul gives us this hint about grieving. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. You see, we grieve uniquely. We grieve differently because we have hope. Paul had this unique life. He was the guy that was Saul before. He he was the guy persecuting the church. He comes to know Jesus. He's preaching the word of God, and Paul suffers. Paul suffers like you wouldn't believe. In fact, in Corinthians, he lays out a list of all the things that he's had to go through. He's gotten shipwrecked a number of times, and it wasn't on Carnival Cruise. He's gotten stoned almost to death a number of times. He's been tortured by being whipped 39 times with this this cat of nine tails, this whip that had like rocks and glass on the end of it that would just tear your flesh off. He got 39 lashes a number of times. And here's the significance of that. It was believed that if you got 40 lashes, if you got 40 lashes, you would die. And he was tortured with the whip 39 times on multiple different occasions. He was imprisoned. He was without food. Paul knows a thing about suffering. Can we agree? I mean, Paul knows about suffering. But Paul had this other unique experience. And Jesus gave him this experience where he was taken up and he, he got to, in, in a vision or in body, he said, I'm not even sure exactly what it was. But he was taken up into heaven. And he got to see and he got to experience, he got to feel heaven in the presence of Jesus, right? And he, he begins saying these crazy things. And he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, he's talking about suffering, he's talking about trials. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Did you hear the list that I talked about with Paul? Didn't sound like light, momentary anything to me. Light, momentary affliction. What's he talking about? Is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says, hey, I have gotten this unique opportunity to be in heaven, to experience, to see, to be with Jesus. And what I saw there, what I experienced there, what I felt there was so amazing, so beyond what I can even describe. The greatness of it, the glory of it, the the connectedness of it was so great that all that stuff that I listed out, it seems like light and momentary. It seems like nothing compared to what we have, the hope that we have, what God has for us, what our loving God has prepared for us. It's so amazing that it makes our suffering seem light and momentary. He says, hold on, hang on. In the midst of grieving, don't grieve without hope because there is hope. There's hope that you're being brought to completion. There's hope that you're being connected to Jesus. Your hope, there's hope that when you die, you receive this eternal weight of glory that's so great, that's so beyond, that you will look at your, your life, your suffering, and you'll say, oh, it was so worth it. In fact, Paul goes on to say, and when we read about it a little bit in Philippians chapter three, he says, you know what? 
It's so great what, what, what I've seen, what I've been connected to, that, that if suffering draws me closer to Jesus, then bring on the suffering. Because I want this. I want to be connected to Jesus. And if suffering brings me closer, then I want to go through suffering because I love him so much. I'm so captivated by him. I'm so enthralled by him that I would like to suffer so that I can be nearer to him. And that's tough. I mean, on the scale of suffering and cursing God to, this, to the end of the scale where you're worshiping God and, and, and wanting more so you can be nearer to him, I mean, that's a, that's a big scale. And I don't know where you find yourself today. I've been at multiple points on this scale in my life. And it's hard. And then there's this truth about suffering in the eternal perspective which, which has helped me just recently. Healing is good. Healing is very good. And as we've seen, when God supernaturally heals, great glory is had for God. The expansion of the gospel happens. But what I've seen in my experience, I've gotten experience a couple of friends miraculously healed. I had a buddy who had this back problem, this awful back problem, and, and, and they, they couldn't fix it. And a bunch of people gathered around and prayed for him, and he was healed. And people celebrated. Glory was brought to God in his healing. It was good. But I have seen men and women walk through suffering with hope. I've seen men and women walk through suffering like Job, praising God, saying God gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the good that I have seen God do in that is so beyond what I've seen him do through healing. It blows my mind. And here's why. Because there is a world, there are men and women who are looking in on the body of Christ and they are desperate for hope but they're desperate for a hope that's beyond explanation. You know, when, when God does something good and we praise God for that, that makes sense. Everyone knows when someone gives you a gift, you thank them for that. But when, but when the world sees men and women in the midst of suffering, in the midst of their friends dying, in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain and agony, and they have this hope, this hope that is worship, this hope that is praise to God. It, it's this hope that they want so desperately. It says that there is meaning in the midst of this difficult life. There's meaning beyond life here. There's hope. And I have seen God do such great, amazing work in the lives of men and women, changing their eternities through guys and girls that suffer with hope, praising God. I don't know where you are on the scale. Whether you're cursing God in the midst of suffering or you're praising his name in the midst of suffering. But I found this psalm so helpful for me just recently. It's Psalm 103. And David is, David is praising God in this psalm. And it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And this is David. David, who's a man after God's own heart. But what I hear him doing is he's giving his soul a pep talk. I don't know what he's going through at this point, but he's saying, hey, soul, bless God. Remember what he's done. Remember what he's doing. Remember what he's going to do. Bless God. And I need that. I need a pep talk to my soul. I need to be reminded of the greatness of our God, the beauty of our God, the goodness of our God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of death. I've got to be reminded because I don't always feel it. And I just love that the great men and women in the Bible also needed to be reminded. I'll be honest with you, I I did not want to preach this message. When when God kept leading me in this way towards pain and suffering and death, I I did not want to preach it because it's heavy, it's hard, it's difficult. But I'm so thankful because as I've gotten to study, as I've gotten to pray through and meditate, as I have seen the beauty of God in such ways that I haven't seen it before, that God took us. He took the consequences of our sin that we should have experienced to its fullness, and he gave it it great meaning, bringing us into perfection. He gave it great significance, drawing us near to Jesus in this world. He gave it great beauty in death that we are finally united. The veil is taken away. We no longer see in a mirror dimly. We no longer know in part, but we know fully. We are connected intimately to God who we are created to need to be connected to. I've seen the beauty of God as he says, look at my son, he grieved too. Remember my spirit has filled you. Remember the community surrounds you. God is so good, and I've seen his goodness more in this suffering than I have any other time. There's something unique about suffering that he redeems for his glory and for our good. And I'm just in awe of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow. God, you are great. You are beyond what we can imagine. You're beyond what we can fathom. You're so good that even in the midst of what we deserve, you made it so much lighter, so much better, so much more meaningful. You you gave us hope in the midst of suffering. And you take that and you use us for your glory in your story to proclaim your name, to give those around us hope who have never known it. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, you'd continually open our eyes to your beauty, to the amazing beauty of your character in all that you do and all that you bring us through. Lord, I pray that you would would just give us that glimpse so that we might, as a little child running into his daddy's arms, so grateful to see you, that we would run into your arms. Father, we need you and we thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who took care of the problem of sin and death in our life so that we might be united to you fully. Thank you so much 
for Jesus. Thank you so much, God. We need you so deeply and desperately, and it is in your son's amazing, beautiful, majestic name, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.